centuries of domination on the world stage. By the 13th century, the Muslim civilization seemed to be in retreat. The once mighty Abbasid Caliphate had been reduced to basically a figurehead, and the Mongol hordes were swarming in from the east. Meanwhile, the Crusades had been ravishing the Holy Land, and the Muslim state in Spain was slowly but steadily losing ground. Yet it would mark the beginning of a new era, a new empire which must certainly rank not only as one of the greatest Muslim empires in history, but one of the great powers in world history. This is of course the Ottoman Empire. From very humble beginnings as a small tribe, fleeing westward from the Mongol hordes, founding a civilization that still remains to be seen today in the magnificent spires of Istanbul. Maybe the last period we can honestly refer to as a golden age of Islam. And that is our subject today and for our next few episodes, beginning the story of the Ottoman Empire. So please stay with us. Okay, welcome back, and thank you to all. We're glad to be back here on the air again. Uh, we've had a bit of a hiatus, uh, so thank you for your patience, those of us who have been asking us for new episodes. And, of course, if you're just scrolling through these and not listening to them in order, then you haven't noticed any pause at all. But uh, things have been quite busy here. Uh, I am in the process of finishing two books that will be coming out uh, later on next year with the American University of Cairo Press uh, on Arabic literature uh, and they're just a great organization to work with um, so privileged to work with them uh, but that's taken a lot of time but I am very glad to be getting back into the podcast again especially now as we're really entering one of the most distinct phases of Islamic history. And if we're going to divide that history into eras, into phases, then certainly one of the most important shifts begins with the rise of the Ottoman Empire. Now this will really be the last great Muslim empire. Um, of course we can argue that. Um, but the Ottoman Sultans will really be the last ones to actually take the title of the Caliph. And that indicates that at least in their eyes, power of the whole Muslim world had shifted to them, and they became the standard bearers for Dar al-Islam. Um, so indeed, although other people have called themselves Khalifs over time, I mean, including some uh, crazy people in recent years, um, they did have a lot of support with this. And in fact, if you look up the title Khalif, in an encyclopedia, or let's be honest, the uh, encyclopedia people have today is Wikipedia. If you look it up, it's going to say that the caliphate runs from the death of Muhammad until finally being abolished by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk in 1924, with the Ottoman sultans being the last caliphs. Now, of course, a lot of people, particularly Arabs, don't accept that and don't acknowledge the Ottomans as caliphs. But that's a whole other story. Uh, the fact is that they had enough power, enough territory, and enough authority that they could get away with this. And so we definitely need to consider them as a major Muslim empire. And one of the reasons that the Ottoman claim to be caliphs over all of Islam is taken seriously is that they take control of the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. And, and they control Jerusalem as well. Uh, and so the Ottoman Sultan is in charge of the Hajj and the security of it. Uh, and the most holy relic of Islam, the mantle of the Prophet Muhammad, is taken back 
to the Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, where it is still today. Um, it's in a locked room, and they have Quran reciters reciting the Quran over it nonstop for the last 400 years. Uh, I've seen them, they're, they're still doing it. They do it in shifts. You can go look and see them do it. So, uh, a lot of claim that they have to this role as being the last great empire of Islam. Of course, there will be great empires that are Muslim as well. Okay, anyway, just looking at that, it sounds like they really do take over. But another reason that the Ottomans are so important to us is that if you're coming to this from a Western perspective, if that's your heritage, um, and mine certainly was, the rise of the Ottoman Empire coincides pretty much, you know, give or take a century or so with the rise of Europe, Renaissance Europe, and it lasts right up until the 20th century. And since Europe was at that time much more aware of its surroundings than it had been um, during the Dark Ages, in a lot of European writings, uh, the words Turk and Muslim become equated and people switch these on and off. Uh, you can still read about this today. Uh, Cervantes, for example, he goes off to fight the Turks and is captured by them. So uh, we're talking about a very important shift. Uh, and this is really significant because if you've been following these episodes um, in order, uh, you know by that time, the time of the rise of the Ottoman Empire, what we think of as the traditional Arab Muslim power has pretty much been driven out of Europe. Um, Spain will be lost, of course, in the 1400s, and it's really only the lore of the New World that saves North Africa from being conquered. Of course, it's going to be conquered later on by the Europeans, but they get a little bit of a, a breather. Um, the Crusades have, you know wrecked a lot of damage on Arab power in the Levant, and even though the Crusader states are eventually driven out, I mean, they've definitely uh, shown that Islam is on the defensive. And at this time, there are great empires in Europe and are setting out in search of conquest. Okay, so it's a very clear swing of the pendulum, if you're one of those big-picture historians uh, who like to talk about the sweep of history over centuries. Okay, so we had, you know, at one time the Roman Empire that just swept over everything and then collapsed. And then here comes Islam out of a remote corner of the desert and sweeps all the way from Spain to the borders of China. And now we have the Europeans sweeping back again, and they're going to, of course, sweep their way to the Americas and kill a lot of people, uh, and eventually going to colonize pretty much most of everything outside of Europe and parts of Asia. Except there is one little exception uh, to this big picture sweep, uh, and that is the pesky Ottomans. Uh, they rise during this time, and in fact, uh, the Ottomans will come to the gates of Vienna and threaten the very existence of Europe itself. Um, and this is very often over-dramatized, but uh, I've heard many uh, people say that you know, if it were not for just uh, luck and the resistance in Vienna, all of Europe would have fallen. Well, that's probably not true, but it gives you a an idea that it's not strictly Europe on the attack and Islam on the defensive. The Ottomans will be a sort of an exception to that. Now, of course, for centuries, the Ottomans will be the big rivals of the Spanish and the English as world powers. Now, this isn't going to last forever. The Ottoman Empire spends its last centuries known as the sick man of Europe, and it really survives much longer than it should have, mostly because the big European powers want to keep it around as a buffer, primarily against Russia, and so they're basically keeping this thing on life support after it had lost all of its vitality, but still it's a pretty good run. From the 1400s on through the late 1700s at least, this is one of the world's great civilizations. 
And even today, if you walk through the Dolmabachi Palace in Istanbul, I mean, you really get a sense of this being a world power. This is a place that's on a level with Versailles for greatness and splendor. Of all the great Muslim imperial cities over the years, uh, Istanbul really stands out among them. Uh, of course, Baghdad was destroyed. Uh, Cairo, which of course is a great capital for centuries, uh, with uh, no offense to my, my Egyptian friends, Cairo is a, a wonderful city. I lived there and I loved it. Um, and there are a lot of great Islamic monuments in Cairo, sort of mixed in with the rest of the city. But uh, you go to Istanbul, you stand on the Golden Horn, you look across the Bosphorus, uh, and even though it is a, a modern city and you're going to see a lot of modern buildings, you can still look over Istanbul and just see the horizon filled with the, the spires of uh, great mosques and palaces that have existed for centuries and it still retains the character of being really the, the great um, capital of its day. Um, and so here's a place where you can still see the glory of the old empire on display like this. And unlike other cities, I mean, if you go to Cairo, you're going to see a lot of different civilizations and empires and dynasties. Uh, you can see pyramids, you can see mosques, you can see um, all sorts of British uh, buildings as well. This is one place where you go, take a look at Istanbul, and it is very, very clearly the Ottoman city. Yes, there are still Byzantine, um, great Byzantine buildings there, but you definitely see that this is the the Ottoman city. Uh, and, you know, nowhere else do you see it on display uh, so much, unless, of course, you go to Beijing in the Forbidden City or go to Luxor and, um, you know, look back over thousands of years. So, if we're talking about what is arguably the last real act of the Golden Age of Islam, it's a story that reaches great heights, but it starts from very humble beginnings. Um, with a very small tribe on the run from the Mongols, to be honest, as pretty much everybody was in the mid-13th century, and very improbably rise to be one of the great settled empires. Now, before we go on, it's always important to situate ourselves in time here, and even uh, myself as a historian, I still have to look back and say, okay, what what's going on in the world at this time? You know, because you've got all these different timelines going on. So, you know, what's actually going on in this environment into which the Ottomans emerge uh, that they come out of? Okay, so we want to look a little bit at the geography and the chronology of this time. Now, this may be a little bit of a review for a lot of you, so I don't mean to insult anyone's intelligence. And in fact, I've got many listeners in Turkey who keep in touch, and I certainly appreciate that. So don't mean to insult you all by going over the geography of Turkey, which you, of course, know better than I do. But let's look at this situation. So to briefly recap these many centuries of Islamic history, of course, uh, we really reach a peak with the Abbasid Empire, headquartered in Baghdad, which begins in the 750 AD and will run right about 500 years. 1258, it's going to end with a big, big crash when the Mongols uh, attack. But even before that, uh, the Abbasids have lost a lot of their power. And we can really say that the Abbasid Empire has become uh, figureheads. Not exactly. They still, the Abbasid Khalifs still do play a role, um, but they've really lost most of their power. And of course, if you followed along, they have lost this power to a series of Turkish uh, dynasties because the Turks are initially brought in as warriors, and we, as I often say, you know what happens when you bring in outside warriors, 
um, they tend not to leave and they tend to take over. Okay, so by this time, and we're talking about, let's say, the 1200s, really effective power in what is the Abbasid Empire, the once great caliphate, is held by the Seljuk Turks. And so this is interesting and can be a bit confusing if you're like looking these things up in a in an encyclopedia, or let's be honest, if you're going on Wikipedia and trying to figure this out. So you can look up the Seljuk dynasty and see this long line of Seljuk sultans. And you see a map showing the territory that they controlled and the time period they controlled it. And then you can go up and look at the Abbasid Caliphate and see basically the same territory and a lot of the same dates and okay what's going on here and so what's happening is we you know we've got dynasties within dynasties so the Abbasid Caliphate is the official on paper uh, ruling authority but real power is being held in their name by the Seljuks to the extent that the Seljuk Sultan is is powerful enough that he's basically got his own empire and his own dynasty which is which is the Abbasid Empire. And just to, to uh, clarify some of these names, uh, to us it just seems like a lot of names of rulers, uh, but there actually is a logic to it, of course. Khalif means successor, and this means, of course, successor to the Prophet Muhammad, and we spent uh, a few episodes talking about exactly what that means and of course the Muslim community spent quite a while trying to figure out exactly what that meant but it ends up meaning basically successor to the political military and legal rule that the prophet exercised and not of course his prophecy okay so we still have caliphs and um, at this time the Abbasid caliphs Okay, Sultan literally means holder of power. Sulta, Sulta means power in Arabic. So a Sultan is a holder of power. And it's, it's a big distinction because it's not saying that someone is royal. It's not saying they're a king. It's certainly not giving any religious connotation or, you know, aristocratic royal connotation. This is the dude who holds power. Okay. Now, of course, Ottoman sultans are going to end up being as powerful as any caliph was, but there is a big difference. So these Turkish generals are essentially the sultans exercising power under the caliph, who is, uh, I mean, the, the official ruler. And this gets even more complicated because beneath them we have emirs and so forth. Okay, so this is sort of the, the basic situation that we have. Uh, the Abbasids uh, will not control anything uh, west of Egypt by this time. Um, and we can sometimes uh, lose sight of this fact, but it's actually against the Seljuks that the Crusades are launched. Now, maybe not in the eyes of Europeans. To them, you know, it's against the Muslims, it's against the Saracens, these devils, whatever we want to call them, the infidels. But they're actually going against uh, the Seljuk Turks. It's who they're fighting against. And, of course, as a result of the Crusades, we will get separate dynasties in the Levant and Egypt. Of course, Salah Hadin and then the Mamluks who follow him. Okay, but it is against the Seljuk powers that initially they're uh, fighting. Okay, so we have to talk a little bit about the geography of the area, and particularly if you're listening to this while you're driving or on a treadmill, you probably don't have access to a map. I certainly hope you don't, and you shouldn't definitely not be looking at one in that case. Uh, but anyway, the Abbasid center of rule is, of course, Iraq. And you know, really, Persia, what is today uh, modern-day Iran, they will lose control of the Levant area. And by Levant, we mean Palestine, Jordan, Syria. Uh, you know, what is what is now uh, Lebanon, and of course, they they don't control Egypt uh, either. Uh, the Crusader states briefly for about a hundred years exist there, but they are finally driven out. Now all during this time from the earliest episodes 
uh, Islam has been expanding primarily at the expense of the Byzantine Empire. And of course the Byzantine Empire never referred to itself as the Byzantine Empire. They considered themselves to be Rome, uh, the Eastern Roman Empire headquartered in Constantinople, which of course becomes Istanbul and gets a famous song to help us remember that. Okay, so what we know of today as Turkey is part of the Byzantine Empire initially, but slowly it's chipped away at by the Muslim powers. Now from the earliest sultans, we know the Umayyad sultans wanted to go to Constantinople. I mean they conquered great empires. They conquered the, the Persian Empire, they conquered the Egyptians, they conquered uh, all of North Africa, uh, but the place they really wanted to go is Constantinople and it makes sense geographically, it makes sense politically, and it makes sense religiously. Of course, Islam does not see itself as a new religion, a different religion. It is monotheism, it is correcting the earlier monotheism, so it makes sense uh, that the Islamic Empire would replace the er earlier Christian Empire in the uh, the center of Christendom is Constantinople so it would have made complete sense um, historically uh, for the Caliphate to be headquartered in Constantinople unfortunately they're never able to take that city uh, as hard as they try tries, uh, a lot of Umayyad sultans try it, uh, but they're not able to get there. And of course, Constantinople has to get the award for the most impregnable city uh, in history. Uh, it's amazing that the place holds out as long as it does, particularly given what we're going to see in, in this episode uh, when they essentially lose everything but the city, but the city holds out, the city walls hold out for just an, an improbably long period of time. Okay, so uh, what has happened though is the Seljuk Sultan, who is the real power holder of course, but is technically ruling in the name of the Abbasid Caliphs who, who still exist but don't really exercise political power. Okay, anyway, the Seljuk Sultan for various reasons, uh, has to occupy what's now most of Turkey. Of course, in, if you know the geography of Turkey, uh, about 90% of it is in Asia, uh, a very long rectangular shape uh, piece of land, and there's a small bit in Europe, and these of course meet at Constantinople where the straits are, but by this time, the time we're talking at the 1200s, uh, the Byzantines have lost almost all of uh, Asian Turkey, what we call Anatolia, okay, the, the big part of Turkey that's in Asia. And what the Seljuks are doing is they are settling this area with Turkish tribes. Um, you know, rather than sending their own troops in and building their own garrison cities and so forth, they are settling allied tribes there. Now, there are a number of reasons for this which wouldn't normally be this important, but this is how the Ottomans come into existence. Okay, one of the biggies is of course the Mongols. Uh, you know, all these peoples are coming from Central Asia. This is where the Turks originate from, this is where the Seljuks originated from, and where the, the Ottomans are going to originate from. But of course the big, big force moving everything westward is the Ottomans who are driving everybody. Okay, and, and we know how this is going to end. They're going to keep going. Okay, so there are a lot of Turkish tribes migrating into, you know, what is the, the still the Abbasid Caliphate. And so we need to settle these somewhere. And so this becomes a good thing to do. Um, something historians call a, a march, which is not the most self-explanatory term, but is like a borderland uh, between powers that are at, at war or hostile. Okay, so there is of course march land between the Muslims and the, the Byzantines. And so this is very useful. 
you know, nowadays we would think you, you, you know, we have clear borders on a map. So you have to go in, you have to establish your borders, and you're going to put troops up there in a demilitarized zone and barbed wire and the whole thing. Well, back in those days, what you do is you find somebody who is, uh, you know, allied to you, someone who's trustworthy. Uh, who, who needs to resettle and you settle them in this area and so this is how uh, what is you know now Turkey Anatolia becomes full of these Turkic tribes which have come from the east most of them are not Muslim when they get there um, the initial wave of Turks was Muslim but the ones that are coming now um, you know in, in front of this Mongol onslaught. Uh, most of them are not. They're they're pagans, but they settle in. They're useful, uh, and, and eventually, of course, because they're allied to the Seljuks, most of them are going to come in. They're all going to convert uh, eventually. Um, and so, at the time where when Baghdad falls and the Ottoman rise really begins, there are ten major tribes that have you know essentially fiefdoms, little pieces of territory in what is now modern-day Turkey and this is known as the uh, Seljuk Sultanate of Rum this is one of the the subdivisions of the Seljuk territory now Rum here has nothing to do with uh, Jimmy Buffett or Captain Morgan Rum of course is the word Rome which is what Constantinople was always referred to. It's what it considered itself to be. It's what the Byzantines called themselves. They didn't call themselves Byzantines. They were Romans. Um, and as a rule of thumb, basically nothing during this time period has the same name as what we call it today, just so you know. Okay, so the, the Seljuk Sultanate of Rome essentially is, is basically the Seljuk Sultanate in Turkey, meaning, i.e., former Byzantine territory. And so this is the one of the reasons that the Ottomans get a piece of territory there. Uh, another is that although he's close to the Byzantine Empire, the Seljuk Sultan really wants to expand southward into Arabia. That's where their main interest is. And then of course when the Mongols show up they're going to be heavily involved with trying to defend against the Mongols, which is not going to be successful. Uh, but they're not really looking to focus on Anatolia. They don't have you know large standing armies that they can station them there and so this becomes another reason why you want to have loyal tribes there. Now for their part tribes like the Ottomans um, you know despite how this may be portrayed in Europe at the time as the you know hordes of Muslim infidels coming to uh, attack Christendom you know that's not really what they're about in the first place they're, they're not Muslim at all at this point in time and they're not looking to take over Constantinople um, in the Byzantine Empire I mean essentially they're trying to run from the Mongols and they would like to keep good relations with the Byzantines as best as they can. And, and this is just something that's true throughout this entire period from the beginnings of Islam in the 7th century uh, right up until uh, the Byzantine Empire falls 700 years later. You know, there are wars. There's especially a lot of skirmishes on the border. But for the most part, there's a lot of trade going on, a lot of exchange, there's a lot of intermarriage going on. I mean, it's pretty much a, a, a very active relationship uh, between these folks. So this is the situation into which our Ottoman Empire is going to be born. So we have all, all these Turkish tribes, essentially 10 Turkish tribes uh, occupying Anatolia. We have a very weakened... Abbasid slash Seljuk state, which is about to be steamrolled by the Mongols, who are just, I mean, you talk about a game changer, they like kick over the table and knock the pieces all over the floor. They are complete game changers, and it's out of this that we're going to get an Ottoman Empire, although it really probably doesn't seem like it at the time.
Okay, so why do we even call this thing the Ottoman Empire? Uh, and it's like a lot of things when we're going back and forth between languages, we end up with a lot of different words for the same word. So the founder and namesake of the Ottoman Empire is Osman I, or Usman I, one of the, that's one of the ways it's rendered into English. Um, and the name Osman, which is what I will call him, is the same as the word Ottoman, okay? And it's actually the same as the Arabic Uthman. You remember, Uthman was the third caliph of the original Rashidun caliphs. Um, and just by the way, Uthman is said to have produced the first written Quran, and the oldest surviving copy of the Quran is also in the top Kapi palace in Istanbul. Just thought I'd point that out. Anyway, um, so realize we're essentially talking about the same word here. Uthman, who becomes the namesake of Osman, uh, I mean, he starts out with a different name and he becomes Osman or Usman, and he becomes the namesake of the Ottoman Empire. It's all the same word. And we're going to see this a lot. You'll notice a lot of Turkish names sound similar to Arabic names. And in fact, what they are, are they're just Turkish pronunciations, and then later they'll become spellings of Arabic names because letters and sounds in the languages are somewhat different. And of course, we all do this. None of the names we're using for, for these people or places are the real thing. I mean, Uthman, the Khalif, his name doesn't actually begin with a U in Arabic. It begins with an Ayn, but uh, an Ayn is a letter that doesn't exist in English, and uh, many Arabic students wish it didn't exist in Arabic either. Uh, they consider it impossible to pronounce. Uh, so Uthman, beginning with a U, is, is an Romanization of um, his name. Um, it's like the way Palestine and Philistine are just two different English speakers trying to pronounce the same word and they ended up writing it down differently. Okay, um, so we do this all the time and this is how we end up with politicians and newscasters talking about Al-Qaeda, which sounds like fingernails on the chalkboard. Okay, I just mentioned this because you're going to hear a lot of names in, that sound similar. Oh, Mehmed, that sounds like Muhammad. Well, it is. It's the same name. Um, it's just the, the Turkish pronunciation of it. And I am definitely not a Turkish speaker, as you will see. So most of my Turkish versions are going to be wrong. Okay, so anyway, back to Osman, who is the founder of the Ottoman dynasty. Uh, he is a figure so shrouded in legend, and we have no recorded sources for his time. So really the legend is all we have. Now we, we do believe that he actually did exist, um, but much of what is written about him uh, ends up being what we call hagiography, which is you know essentially like it officially means writing about saints, but it's like... Um, it, it so much has been projected onto him, we'll never know really about what the, the real person was like. So he essentially becomes George Washington and Charlemagne all put together. Um, and there is a lot written about him, but it's all written during the height of the Ottoman Empire several centuries later. And so it becomes quite glorifying. Uh, so basically, the bi biography on him is essentially that Osman is just a perfect, perfect guy. I mean, that's essentially what we have. Anyway, uh, for example, Osman is said to have been born on February the 10th, 1258, which sounds perfectly legit unless you know that that is the date that Baghdad fell to the Mongols. And this, of course, was a catastrophically bad day in Islamic history. I mean, it's about as bad as they come. Um, it's about as bad as, you know, Bill Buckner for the Red Sox. Okay, uh, the city of Baghdad was destroyed, and the, the Abbasid Caliphate, really the Arab Caliphate, which had survived for 500 years, comes to an end. Now, of course, technically the Caliph does survive, and the Caliphate is moved to Cairo, but it becomes a complete figurehead for the Mamluks. Oh, so in real terms, uh, the Abbasid Caliphate is over. Now, 
Ottoman writers centuries later, when the Ottoman Empire has replaced the Abbasids officially, in their version, officially replaced the Abbasids and officially taken over the Caliph, date the birth of their founder to the exact date the previous one is destroyed. So you see, you get it? They had gotten corrupt, okay? Uh, and so God lets them be destroyed by an evil horde, a la like the Old Testament, what's happening all the time, and sends the successor at the very same day. And there's lots and lots of visions like this. The, the stories of Osman have lots of visions and dreams and so forth, and they, they all follow this pattern that it's, I mean, it's so obviously abundantly clear that the Abbasid uh, Empire is dying at the hand of God and the Ottoman Empire is being birthed right at that very moment. Um, but the, the fact is that does kind of fit history. Uh, whether he actually was born on that day or not, the legends do fit with what eventually happens. Okay, now I'm not trying to knock the Ottoman historians here. And, and in fact, you know, we have a different idea of, of history nowadays. You know, nowadays if you say someone was born on February 10th, then we're assuming you actually mean they were born on February 10th. Uh, back then, what they wrote was more symbolic. So I don't think anyone actually meant this to say whether he really was born on that day or not. It, it's just showing the significance of what's going on here. Okay, now, uh, Osman and his tribe were fleeing from the Mongols. We know that, which was very common in the 1200s. Uh, and they end up in Anatolia, and they end up being given a piece of land under the, the authority of the Seljuk Sultan, which was also fairly common. Now, that is flushed out with more details. The legend is that their leader, Ertegrul, uh, who is Osman's father, was moving his tribe westward when he saw two armies battling. And being very chivalrous, he chose to back the smaller force, which turned out to be the Seljuk Turks, who win, and so they reward him. Okay. After he helps them win the battle, uh, when the tribe is camped, Osman is staying in the house of a Muslim. And the man leaves a book in Osman's room, which turns out to be the Quran, and Osman stays up all night reading the book and, of course, converts to Islam. And for his dedication, an angel appears and announces that Osman was God's trusted one to preserve the faith. Okay, again, these, these, these stories, these legends abound, uh, and whether they're true or not, they are definitely symbolic of what is going to happen in the long run. Uh, there are a lot of dream stories in, involving Osman, and one of the most famous involves his marriage to uh, Rabia Bala Hatun, who was the daughter of a very influential religious leader of the time, Sheikh Edabali. Uh, now, the Sheikh was a Sufi leader of the very influential Ahi Brotherhood, and it's, of course, very common at this time, very common uh, among the Turks. Uh, the Sufis have a lot of power. Uh, now, the Sheikh himself was an Arab and a descendant of the Prophet, so someone with a lot of legitimacy. Osman is a fairly recent convert to Islam, and he wants to marry the Sheikh's daughter. Now, Sheikh Edabali had been an ally of Osman's father, who was, the, of course, the chief of the tribe. But a marriage will solidify the alliance between essentially the, the military tribal leader and the religious figure. Uh, it's a familiar pattern amongst these Muslim tribal societies. And if, if you know the history of Saudi Arabia, this is essentially how Saudi Arabia is, is formed. But anyway, Osman wants to marry the sheikh's daughter. And he has a very symbolic dream which has probably gotten more elaborate with every telling because it gets really, really, really elaborate. There's just a lot of stuff going on in this dream. But in part of it, um, there are two swords representing the two families that emerge from their chests and they, they merge in the, in the sky 
over the mountains, which each represent the different kingdoms of the area, and a lot of other stuff happens. But what it shows very clearly is that Usman is going to be the leader of the Muslim world from here on out, and the Adabali family will be his partners. Uh, and again, whether you know whatever the origins of this story, it does describe what is eventually going to happen. Sheikh Adabali becomes the first Qadi of the Ottoman state. Osman, of course, becomes a leader, uh, and Adabali's descendants will become the, the Qadis. Okay, so it's showing this alliance that they have. Now, what happens um, outside the dream is that the Sheikh, of course, agrees to the marriage, and he presents Osman with a sword, which will become the official mark of his authority, and this sword is given to future sultans, kind of like a crown is passed down. They pass down the famous sword of Usman. Um, it, it's not really seen until the Sultan Murad II, but um, that's the story. Anyway, this is a lot of premonitions of glory for what is at this time a tribal state. And so this is why a, a lot of this, again, should not necessarily be taken as people are faking history. It's just that history has a different interpretation at the time because uh, I mean it, it, at this time they are a very small tribe with a small piece of land in the Seljuk Sultanate of Rome and I mean, having all of these visions of um, glory of being a great empire which of course we know they do. Okay so um, now, what is absolutely certain, though, is Usman gets a very primo piece of land, and the Ottoman um, territory in Anatolia is very close. It's the closest one to Constantinople, and in fact, if you're looking at a map that is not very detailed, you would even think it includes Constantinople. You have to get a fairly detailed map to see that it, it, it does not quite go up to the city itself. And what that says, for one thing, is that the, the Byzantines have really lost a lot of their territory. Uh, now, we're talking in the mid-1200s. Constantinople is going to survive for another 200 years after this. Right. It lasts 700 years after the rise of Islam, but even at this point, if you look at a map, it's like the, the Turkish tribes are like right up against the city of Constantinople, and they, they will be there. For, it'll take another two centuries for it to fall. So again, this city just holds out far longer than anyone would think they, they would. So, location is really the reason that the minor chieftain, Usman, becomes the founder of a great empire. Um, now, it, there doesn't seem to be any particular region. It, it wasn't like he was the closest to the Seljuk Sultan or he did anything uh, spectacular for the Seljuk Sultan. Um, so, it's just that they were, were given this uh, piece of territory, but there were other and more powerful uh, leaders in the area. So it's not a done deal that they're going to end up taking over Constantinople. Okay, so the Mongols come in, uh, and as we know, they sweep through everything very quickly and unexpectedly, and they destroy everything, right? So this is not the familiar pattern that we've had over the centuries where a new ruler takes over, we get a new central government, but things on the ground essentially stay the same. Uh, right. This is this is not what's going to happen. Uh, the Abbasids will be gone. The Seljuks will will collapse um, uh, eventually. Finally, the the Seljuk Sultan uh, will be executed by the Mongols, and the Seljuk Sultanate of Rome falls. Uh, so it's a little bit complicated. If you remember our previous episodes, although the Mongols sweep through really quick. They have a succession crisis, and the Mongol leaders end up converting to Islam, and so we end up with a Mongol Muslim state, an Ilkhanate, uh, that ends up being in charge. This is essentially what is now going to be over Osman. Okay, 
but he has a lot of uh, freedom. He essentially becomes a free agent. Now, what's interesting here, though, is that the Mongols, instead of sweeping on to Constantinople themselves, as we might expect, instead they go south into Palestine and they will be eventually defeated by the Mamluks, this very, very famous uh, battle, and that really ends it for them. Then there's a series of internal splits, a series of deaths, and really Osman and his other peers at this point really do become free agents uh, for real. Okay, even with all that luck, though, on his side, um, he, he's still a, running a small tribe. He's not even the favorite to take Constantinople, which has defied Muslim armies for centuries. Uh, Osman does, and I mean, he plays this very uh, smart. He's very strategic about it. And again, we don't really know what Osman actually does and what he's like. It's more like we have the results. And so this does indicate that he did it um, really well. There is one story, one of many conflicting stories, that says after the Seljuk Sultan is killed, the remaining emirs, the remaining tribal leaders in Turkey meet and they choose Osman to be their leader. And that's how it starts. Uh, probably not true, but in, he, he does end up becoming leader. One thing that is significant, and this... Um, it, as you know, is really the mark of sovereignty in Islam is that Osman starts having the Friday sermons issued in his name. At the beginning, before the sermon, the Imam gets up and he says the prayers in the name of the leader. It used to be the Abbasid Khalif. Now they're being said in the name of Osman, which says that he considers himself to be a, a sovereign, independent ruler. Okay, well, the Ottomans may have started out as nomadic warriors, but they settled down rather quickly. Um, in fact, we can lose sight of the fact that they began as nomadic warriors on the Central Asian steppe. And in fact, uh, they had not been in Turkey for very long at this point. But this has, again, a lot to do with location. So as we said, Osman is ruling over a territory which is very close to Constantinople. And it, of course, had been a very developed area. It's, you know, it's sort of the suburbs. It has great infrastructure, has great economic and administrative institutions. Uh, it has several prominent cities. There's really three big cities, uh, cities like Nicaea and Ephesus, which of course are you know famous from Christian history. And, and although the Turks are now in charge, and they are not like the Mongols who run in and, and kill everything. For the most part, yeah, Turks are in charge, but Osman leaves pretty much the existing authority and existing infrastructure there, which is what, what Muslim empires have done everywhere they've taken over. Uh, and this is one reason why the, they're welcomed in many cases by the local populace. And in fact, there are uh, definite stories that the Byzantine Greeks welcome Osman and his leadership as being, you know, either better than the Byzantines or they have some uh, problem with the Byzantine ruler. Okay, so most of the residents, most of the people living in this area are Christian and Greek speaking. Okay, most of the administrators and merchants stay on. And so they're basically absorbing the culture that lies underneath. Now this happens to be a very urbanized, very cultured, very old civilization. And so uh, although the Ottomans have their origins in, in nomadic um, tribal uh, situation, 
I mean, the Ottoman Empire is is not in any sense like that. I mean, it'd be, it's just to look at Istanbul and and look at the great buildings and so forth. It's in the infrastructure that they have. It is a very settled empire. So Osman rules for over forty years, from about twelve eighty to his death in thirteen twenty four. It's hard to date because um, what's happening is that an Ottoman state is coming into being. So the question of when does he become the first Ottoman ruler? Well, when is there an Ottoman state for him to rule over? So it's, it's hard to date it, but he rules for quite a while. Uh, he is known as the first Ottoman Sultan in all uh, dynastic lists. He's listed as number one, although he never uses this title himself. Okay. Uh, he is known for going very slowly and gradually with the expansion uh, and like I say he can he can expand a lot just by attracting people just by you know residents who think okay we'd rather have you in charge than have them in charge uh, so technically he works for the Mongol Ilkhan uh, but you know as long as he's expanding territory at the expense of the Byzantines that's about all they care about so although it seems inevitable at the time, it's not a done deal that the Byzantine Empire is going to fall. I mean, it's held out for a long time. Uh, I mean, if you were betting, you would have bet that this thing fell a long time before. And no one's able to take down Constantinople, and I mean, Osman and his little tribe would, would seem like a long shot um, initially. And in fact, uh, he has, in the beginning at least, he has better relations with the Byzantines than he does with the Mongols to his east. He spends more time fighting them. Uh, there's a lot of infighting, internal fighting. What really kicks things off, though, is the Byzantines begin in 1285 with a campaign to reclaim territory that they had lost. Now, this seems like just poking a hornet's nest, right? I mean, you... You have been losing territory steadily. I mean, you're, you're pushed back to your walls practically, um, but they're not really attacking you. They're fighting amongst themselves, and so you go out and start a war. Well, that sounds dumb to us, knowing how it works out. But, of course, they don't know it's going to go this way. They're, they're thinking they're going to get the territory back. They're going to restore the empire. And initially they do. The, autumn, um, the Byzantines initially start winning, uh, but it doesn't last for very long. Uh, and the Ottomans now turn their attention to the West and they begin winning. And, you know, one of the main reasons they begin winning is because the Byzantines are uh, divided. Uh, they're, you know, they're corrupt. They got a lot of internal problems. They're relying on mercenaries and uh, they're just falling apart. And so uh, the Mongol Ilkhan allows Osman to keep the territory he captures, captures Nicaea, captures Ephesus, uh, and so forth. Still, the Byzantines are not going to give up. In 1302, the emperor marches a large army down towards Nicaea to confront Osman, who has a much smaller force and wisely decides to avoid a battle. So, you know, even though we know that the, the sweep of history is going in one direction, you know, this is still an empire and they can put together a, a much stronger army than this Ottoman tribe can. Uh, but the problem is that although the Byzantines can marshal large armies, they're losing control of the land, they're losing control of the people, they're especially losing control of the agricultural land which is really significant. So you have these cities, but the cities depend on the farms that are around them, and, and those are being gobbled up by the Ottomans. They're slowly absorbing it. People are switching alliances, and there's all kinds of internal problems. Basically, everything the Byzantines do to try and turn this around goes against them. Uh, at one point, the Byzantine Empire uh, hires a force of mercenaries from Catalan in, in Spain, uh, to come fight against uh, the, the Ottomans. And of course the mercenaries come, they get out of control, they become a threat uh, to the Byzantines. And so the Byzantine emperor has 
their leader beheaded, which doesn't make the the Catalonians very happy, and so they start fighting them, and so on. So the Byzantines are falling apart internally. Uh, Osman is not. He's he's getting stronger. He wins a major battle against the Byzantines at Bayafus, and this really it, it marks a turning point. But again, remember Constantinople's still going to hold out for another two hundred years. But the pendulum is definitely definitely um, swinging. Now, Osman continues the slow, gradual expansion of his territory. We certainly can't call it an empire, um, but it's getting stronger uh, and it has strong central authority. He is the sole authority. Uh, while he is on his deathbed, the Ottomans capture the city of Bursa or Borsa or Brusa, um, you'll see it many different ways, which is only a hundred miles away from Istanbul. And this is where they move their headquarters to, and this becomes known as the first capital of the Ottoman Empire. But again, this is a really gradual thing. Uh, you know, they had a, they had a headquarters at Yenishir before this, uh, and so at what point does this tribe become the Ottoman state? become the Ottoman Empire? At what point does their town become a capital? And at what point does their leader become a sultan? I mean, this is, this is all a projection backwards. But still, the city of Bursa uh, is considered to be the first Ottoman capital. Um, and it, it's really its significance becomes more so later. Um, even to this day, uh, it has great uh, significance. And one reason is that uh, Osman is entombed in Borsa uh, with his tomb facing towards Constantinople. And the Ottoman sultans after him will all, uh, as part of their rituals, is they go to the city of Borsa and they make uh, the oath, you know, quote, may I be as good as Osman. And so even, even today, Borsa is very uh, important. My uh, my advisor at Princeton, uh, he wrote a book on Borsa, and so that's how I know, because he told us how important it was. So figure if he considers it important today, it must be. So we have the beginnings of what is going to be a great empire, but I would stress the fact that this stuff only matters because of what comes later on. The fact that this will be an empire that stretches from you know, Tunisia uh, into to Vienna um, is with with its capital at Istanbul is is why we look to find where the beginning of it is. Right? I am, as I'm told, you can go to northern Minnesota, and there's a little creek up there. In such a small creek, you can stand with one foot on either side of it, and people go do this and get their pictures taken because this is considered the beginning of the Mississippi River. Now, to look at it, you would never know it's the beginning of the Mississippi River, but that's considered it. Same thing. Um, you know, we can look at Osman, this tribal leader, establishing what we can call a state in a very small territory, headquartered in the city of Bursa, uh, and say that this is the first Ottoman capital of the Ottoman Empire, and he's the first sultan, that's only because of what happens later on. I mean, otherwise it would just be a, a creek in northern Minnesota, and who's going to go go visit that, right? So it's because of what happens, but these things definitely become enshrined. This origin story becomes very important. So this, from humble beginnings, uh, is the be is the beginning of the Ottoman Empire, and it's significant because we've been talking, you know, over episodes about things breaking up. It seems like almost from the very beginning, things breaking up, getting smaller, and now we're seeing something very different, something that's growing, that has strong central authority, that's um, not a figurehead, and of course, it's going to be one of the the great, and we can call it a golden age. So, again, we thank you very much for your kind attention. 
Uh, we're good to be back. Um, we hope to see you in the future as we continue this story through the Ottoman centuries. We look forward to see you then. Shukran Jazilin wa ma salama. Thank you.